Hi, and welcome to the GBI Conversations podcast. My name is Katie Shavin, and I am the host of this first series. The Global Business Initiative on Human Rights is a business-led cross-industry organisation that works to advance business respect for human rights around the world through practical peer learning and by sharing insights from business practice. GBI's team and network of advisors bring deep experience and immersion in business and human rights developments, unique insights into emerging business practices and approaches, and a commitment to working towards meaningful outcomes for affected people. I'm an advisor to GBI focusing on legal developments and responsible transitions. In this podcast series, I'm talking to a number of GBI's advisors and team members about mandatory human rights due diligence requirements. In this series, we'll be exploring questions that aim to support business practitioners to think critically about their company's approach to human rights and to position their company to navigate these new measures in ways that also meet the expectations of their stakeholders. For example, how can you know if your company's human rights due diligence is really good enough? What do you need to know about downstream due diligence? And how are mandatory due diligence laws affecting expectations of companies when it comes to remedying human rights impacts? Today, I'm speaking to John Drimmer, who is the North American advisor to the Global Business Initiative on Human Rights and also currently a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Paul Hastings, LLP. How are you today, John? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Now, John, you've been in the business and human rights space for a long time now in various roles, and you've brought a lot of leadership to discussions about access to remedy including by finding practical and thoughtful ways to strengthen approaches to grievance mechanisms and remedy by business. I've been following your work on this for a long time now, and I'm really excited to get to talk to you about it today. To get us started, could you say a few more words about your professional background and your interest in developments concerning grievance mechanisms and access to remedy? Well, right out of law school, I actually started doing work for an NGO on police impact litigation in Los Angeles, and certainly that helped shape uh, my view about the importance of access to remedy. Uh, this was largely from a, a state-driven uh, remedy process, but uh, since then, it, it always has been something that I've been particularly focused on as a practicing lawyer. When we talk about business and human rights, I started working in the space uh, in about 2004, I was focusing immediately before that on international humanitarian law, where access to remedy was and is uh, still a, a challenge today. Um, but over the course of my career, uh, since 2004, I have been in-house, as you know, and spent many years uh, at, at a major global mining company where a uh, focus on access to remedy, operational grievance mechanisms, uh, historical remedy programs, dealing with questions around uh, effective remedy, monetary compensation, non-financial remedy uh, was something that was always a significant part of the discussion. And while I was there, as I think, you know, Professor Ruggie was on our advisory board, our CSR advisory board. And so I was able to really learn about uh, developing remedy, remedy programs, remedy processes under his watch, which was uh, uh, certainly an important part for my own learning. It still remains, you know, an important part of what I do today uh, in advising companies. I'm serving or I've served as an independent monitor for operational grievance mechanisms. So that's also something that, that that's given me insights as well. Um, and, and so, yeah, in the end, you know, 
access to remedy and operational grievance momentum this has been an important part of my career and and how i've thought about it for companies as well as for uh, for state institutions and wonderful to have had the opportunity to both see that from the inside of a company perspective as well as from the outside both advising business but also working with civil society <laughs> and engaging in the process to develop the expectations that are, are very influential today the reason that we're talking about access to remedy today is that the introduction of mandatory human rights due diligence laws don't just harden expectations of business regarding due diligence. Some of them also create obligations concerning grievance mechanisms and remedy. Um, John, could you just tell us a bit about what mandatory due diligence laws, you know, like, for example, the German supply chain law or the draft EU corporate sustainability due diligence directive say about grievance mechanisms and remedy? And do we see an alignment between, you know, how this is being approached in emerging uh, legislation and the expectations that are set in authoritative global standards like the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights? Yeah, I, I do think that the increasing focus in mandatory human rights due diligence regulation is helping to drive the standards, the expectations the vision of uh, the UN Guiding Principles and uh, OECD guidelines and, and other authoritative standards. I think it is an important part of driving good practice. Uh, they do increasingly uh, focus on grievance mechanisms, mandatory human rights due diligence laws as part of their scope. And they look at due diligence and the due diligence formula, identifying and assessing risks and impacts, uh, putting into place mitigating measures, evaluating effectiveness reporting, but they also will include uh, grievance mechanisms uh, or complaints mechanisms uh, within that framework. Now, uh, some will extend it throughout the entire uh, supply chain, so it isn't limited necessarily to your operations and, and, and your grievance mechanism wouldn't even be limited to your first year suppliers, but to workers all throughout your uh, supply chain regardless of tier. Some also do talk and focus on uh, remediation and providing remedy for uh, negative impact. So, so certainly as we think about uh, pillar three of the UN guiding principles, which is uh, obviously the, the, the focus on right to remedy, uh, we are seeing that increasingly integrated in specific and tangible ways within the mandatory human rights due diligence regulation without regard necessarily to tier. So it is an important part of those regulatory frameworks. And I think that's going to continue to grow as we see more and more uh, human rights due diligence laws that, that are being proposed and adopted. Thanks, John. Much needed focus, I think, um, which actually leads us nicely into my next question for you, which is about emerging business practice when it comes to grievance mechanisms and remedy. The third pillar of the UNGPs, is, as you've mentioned, um, deals with access to remedy, and it's often described in a space as the forgotten pillar. Um, we know that many stakeholders, not just from civil society, but um, across the border, are concerned that efforts to, to really implement and, and realise this part of the UNGPs haven't progressed nearly far enough. What are you seeing in terms of business practice in this space? What's encouraging? Does anything worry you? Uh, and given the sort of step up in, in focus and activity here, is it still fair to describe Pillar 3 as the forgotten pillar? I don't think so. I, I don't. I think that, you know, bear in mind, obviously, Pillar 3 does have a number of different focuses to it. It has state-based uh, remedy processes, company-based remedy processes with, with operational-level grievance mechanisms. And, and I think there's so much discussion about it 
right now, including the mandatory human rights due diligence laws. But I don't know that we can really say that it's forgotten. And in fact, I think when you look at it, relatively speaking, all three pillars uh, do need continued development, if, if you ask me. I mean, we're really starting to see a real exploration of state duties under Pillar 1 in terms of their human rights laws, uh, and particularly in thinking about holistic approaches to human rights. And the EU is obviously approaching these things holistically uh, with its its regulatory proposals and its regulatory adoption. But I think other domestic jurisdictions, it's probably a little, a little bit more ad hoc. And, and, and so I, I do think we have a lot more work on Pillar 1. We have a lot more work on Pillar 2 as well. I mean, I think due diligence, still understanding what the meaning of due diligence and, and how due diligence really can work effectively is something that is still being explored and understood. Human rights reporting remains an area uh, that I, I think really still needs a bit of contour and, and development. So I think when we look at the other pillars, they also need uh, development and they also need further exploration. And here when we focus in particular on pillar three, we do see a good practice. I, I, it needs it needs further exploration and understanding, and I don't want to suggest anything otherwise. Um, but we do see, you know, good practice uh, from a, a range of companies. We're seeing things like collective approaches to grievance mechanisms to encourage uh, uh, affected stakeholders to to be able to report. We are seeing uh, an increasing focus on alternatives to financial compensation and preventing reoccurrence and apologies and, and, and rehabilitation. Other forms of remedy are, are being discussed and explored. The, the use of independent advisors and monitors is something that, that that's increasing. I think that's a real good practice as well. So there's a lot of good work that is going on. I, I think it perhaps needs a bit more development and more understanding and more shared good practice than some aspects of pillar two, but I don't want to say it's forgotten anymore. Again, particularly in light of the regulatory developments that do include grievance mechanisms, complaint mechanisms, as well as remedy uh, within their scope. Thanks, John. That um, aligns, I think, with um, some of what we've been seeing as well. And I I really noted with appreciation, I think, your focus on collective approaches, but also the alternatives to financial compensation. One additional thing that um, we're seeing, I mean, GBI, as you know, is a, a cross-industry organisation. It's a really fertile space for sharing between different sectors. So we see, for example, um, extractive se- sector companies have a, a particular expertise um, with community-level grievance mechanisms. Um, other industries have, have more expertise looking at supply chains and, and worker issues. And the space for sort of cross-fertilised learning across those two things is becoming quite interesting. Thinking about emerging business practice, we've, we've talked a bit about what's encouraging. Are you seeing anything that, that worries or concerns you or that feels like a priority for, for extra focus right now when it comes to strengthening grievance mechanisms? It's a great question. I think on a, I have macro and mic, a macro and micro response. <clears throat> so on a macro basis, I, I do think like Pillar 2, we, we are not seeing Pillar 3 really extended easily to small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, to domestic entities. It really still feels like it's something that only major multinationals are actively integrating and, and pursuing. And so Perhaps that's where regulation will ultimately play a role in looking to drive down uh, grievance mechanisms and, and, and remedy throughout the business sector and the jurisdictions where they apply. On a micro basis, 
I still think some of the tricky issues that we've really been facing since 2011 when the guardian principles were adopted are, are, are still present today. Providing remedy that is not considered an admission of legal liability and how you balance remedy and legal risk is still something companies are ultimately grappling with. How to address the fact that in, in many jurisdictions, uh, affected stakeholders, they just want monetary compensation, and 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 yet companies may be more reluctant to provide monetary compensation. And so trying to engage and reach some kind of consensual outcome uh, in those kinds of situations can be quite, quite challenging. One of the real challenges remains, as it has since 2011, how do you deal with human rights violations that often present criminal risks, potential criminal issues as well. How do you do that without undermining the work of the state, without undermining state institutions like courts or compensation schemes? How do you go about investigating and evaluating uh, grievances where, where the state itself may want to do an investigation and you could taint witnesses, taint evidence through the work that you're ultimately doing and sharing information that you discover where uh, confidentiality is going to be an, an important expectation, sharing that information with the state. So all of those issues around engagement with the state uh, and potential trampling on state interests, that remains one that I, I do think is a continuing challenge, as well as confidentiality more generally, which is always, always difficult. I do think there's a lot of good work on protecting confidentiality of claimants that's been going on, a lot of good thinking and work in that respect, but it does always remain a challenge. And I, and I guess then the final one is, you know, continued disagreement over facts. And what do you do when a claimant comes and makes a report and you do, you look into it and you just disagree over the facts? How do you address that uh, as a company while nonetheless looking to uh, maintain trust in the grievance mechanism to continue to encourage people to come forward? How do you balance that lack of agreement over the facts with continuing to maintain uh, trust and continuing to, to have stakeholders ultimately come forward when they do feel aggrieved and not become cynical that you're just going to reject their claims where you don't see eye to eye with them on, on, on what happened uh, underneath. So I do think there are quite a few micro challenges in the operation of, of grievance mechanisms, but you know, there's also good practice as well. So we're continuing to see a lot of good developments uh, as well as some of these challenges. Thank you, John. It's such an interesting um, area of practice to watch evolve. And I guess stepping back to think about evolution, it's it's now nearly 12 years since uh, the UN Human Rights Council's endorsement of the UN Guiding Principles. And it's been really interesting to observe how thinking has um, shifted and evolved and, and deepened and new questions and, and challenges have arisen as you know, businesses, governments and, and everybody else work to try and put the UNGPs into practice. How has this played out when it comes to how the concept of grievance mechanisms has been understood? You know, it, it, are we thinking about that in the same way now as, as we were in 2010, 2011? Um, and could you say a little bit more uh, about the connection between grievance mechanisms and human rights due diligence? Sure. Yeah, I, I, I think that, I don't know that it's changed. I think it's still being explored. I, I think how grievance mechanisms work, how they can work effectively, uh, approaches to really have them trickle down through supply chains. I, I think there's a lot of uh, exploration that's continuing to go on. I think there's still a lot 
of understanding um, for for the business community about really what a grievance mechanism is and how it differs from an employee hotline, a, a, an internal whistleblowing uh, mechanism. I, I think that, that that's actually something that companies are, are really increasingly uh, understanding and there's been real good work, including from the Human Rights Working Group in helping set out some of the differences between hotlines and 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 grievance mechanisms. But but look, I think that you know some some of the good practice, some of the novel practice, some of the innovations we've talked about collective approaches, how we think about um, increasing community related grievance uh, process. I think all of those are are super important and, and are important developments. Um, I, I think that as we think about pathways for reporting, I think companies are increasingly recognizing the importance of allowing for multiple pathways, whether it's through hotline, anonymous uh, uh, hotlines, whether it is through email addresses so you can report anonymously, whether it is things like drop boxes that are in a discrete location. So for people who, who don't have phones, they're still able to make reports uh, for people who whose literacy may be challenged. That's where anonymous hotlines might be used. Uh, putting into place different kinds of worker-related and workplace-related advisory groups, uh, senior members of, of the workforce who can also be uh, lines of reporting. Working with unions, I think, is also critically important and, and the role of unions, and especially not undermining, but bolstering uh, unions and allowing for reporting uh, through unions is something that that we've seen continue uh, to grow. So I think we've certainly seen seen growth and I think we've seen evolution, but it, it you know, again, it, there's a long way to go on this. Uh, and it just feels like we're, we're really still at the beginning of exploring the full ways that grievance mechanisms can be used and rolled out uh, effectively from a mechanical or procedural standpoint, much less how remedy can be delivered most effectively on a substantive uh, standpoint. But, but look, I, I do think that increasingly what we're seeing for mature companies, for sophisticated companies who are thinking about due diligence on the concept of grievance mechanisms, and this is certainly something that was uh, part of the thinking of, around Pillar 3 uh, in, its, in its creation, is how do you use this as a source of information to identify patterns, to intake information, to evaluate not just potential human rights issues, but perceptions and attitudes and, and dynamics uh, with potentially affected stakeholders. And I, and I do think that companies are increasingly looking at the information that comes through operational level grievance mechanisms in conjunction with other sources of information, whether it's investigation results, audit results, hotline patterns, uh, reports from community relations and community facing uh, personnel, other sources of information and thinking about it as a package, like what does that body of information really tell us dynamically about relationships with affected stakeholders and potential uh, negative human rights impacts. And so I, I do think uh, bundled together, it is telling more of the picture and, and companies are using it that way. Um, so I do think there's a real good approach, uh, really, really good approaches that are being taken when we think about grievance mechanisms in the, in the context of human rights due diligence overall. Thank you, John. I like the way you put it, exploring what uh, grievance mechanisms are and, and how we put them into practice. Um, I want to 
take you back just very briefly to something that you said in that response. Uh, you flagged the difference between grievance mechanisms and employee hotlines. And I imagine um, many of our listeners might be thinking, what is the difference between a grievance mechanism and an employee hotline? Um, would you be able to say just a, a few words about that? Yeah. So I think that, you know, the biggest difference is, you know, when you think about employees and people who, who you do employ full time or even part time or on a contract basis, you know, that is a particular type of stakeholder. It's an internal stakeholder uh, they they may be able to report to supervisors. And a lot of what you see about concerns that are raised are, are reported through through supervisors as much as through hotlines. Certainly, companies tend to think about anonymous hotlines, phone numbers, email addresses, things like that. Um, and that's become really quite an important part of corporate governance. Um, it's something that, that in the U.S. has existed for quite some time. Certainly, Sarbanes-Oxley, when that came into place, really drove practice in the EU and, and their whistleblowing directive. That, that's a practice that's being advanced there. But there's a difference between how you're soliciting and approaching complaints from your internal stakeholders and your external stakeholders. And the importance of engaging with external stakeholders to understand methods of reporting, what is comfortable, what barriers ultimately might exist, how do you overcome those barriers? Um, th those are important considerations, uh, certainly. And that isn't to say that you can't use your internal hotline also to be externally facing and have that be a, a source as well. I mean, certainly you can have overlap in your pathways of reporting, but but it is a, a, a separate group of stakeholders and the way they may be comfortable reporting, that the barriers they may face, that they may very well be different from what you are, are addressing with your internal stakeholders. And so considering those factors and creating pathways and removing barriers, all, all of those are gonna be really important as we think about community facing uh, operational level uh, grievance mechanisms. In discussions about mandatory due diligence measures, we see a lot of focus from civil society organisations on how these laws can help overcome barriers that affected people face in, in accessing effective remedies. And you've just talked about some of those in, in relation to the, the distinction between grievance mechanisms and, and hotlines. What do you see as the role of legislation in helping to improve access to remedy? Where can it really help cut through some of these challenges? And are there the situations or, or places where we need to look at perhaps other solutions? Yeah, I think the increasing body of human rights related uh, legislation and regulation is re really quite important in reinforcing one of the seminal aspects, critical aspects of Pillar 3, and that is creating an ecosystem uh, around effective remedy and right to effective remedy. The state duty and the state obligation is foremost within the universe of how remedy ultimately ought to be provided. And, and Pillar 3 starts out uh, by talking specifically about the state duty to offer uh, pathways to remedy to potentially uh, affected uh, claimants to individuals who may be victimized. And so certainly when we think about this from a state-based uh, standpoint, you know, having, uh, mandating that operational grievance mechanisms are put into place, but having groups or, or, or agencies that can accept reports from, from victims, from local communities about violations, that is a really important part as we think about the hierarchy of remedy that Pillar 3 
uh, really, really contemplate. So I think that is super important, but it's also super important in trying to fulfill the rest of what we think about as that hierarchy, um, that that overall e ecosystem. Um, yes, the state has the primary obligation to provide access to remedy for potentially affected uh, stakeholders, but of course, multi-stakeholder organizations, companies, they also play important roles. And when we think about a regulation that that is pushing companies, mandating companies to establish operation-level grievance mechanisms to address remedy for claimants who may be uh, aggrieved, it helps fill out that ecosystem by driving uh, the full vision of UNGP 31 and having effective remedy not just rest with state institutions, uh, but also be uh, covered as well by private enterprise, which again is, is really the full vision of what a UNGP 31 uh, looks like. And that can be supported, of course, by collective action and multi-stakeholder initiatives, uh, which uh, UNGP Pillar 3 also uh, very much uh, and specifically contemplates. Thank you, John. That, I think, is a, a fantastic point to reach, I think, towards the, the conclusion of, of this episode. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been a, a very wide-ranging and, and thought-provoking discussion with, I think, a lot of insights and examples that will be useful to a business audience. Before we wrap up, are there any final thoughts on, on this topic that you wanted to share? Yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, as we think about um, the right to remedy, as we think about operational level grievance mechanisms, as we think about regulation that is continuing to explore this area, I would say that this is, number one, a, a, a super important and critically important aspect of business and human rights. It, it is one that companies are continuing to learn uh, best practice, good practice, effective practice. There's still a lot of nuances as well that, that have to be uh, explored. So I do think there's a lot of learning ahead, but I am optimistic uh, that we are moving in the right direction to try to really fulfill the vision of uh, Pillar 3 and allow for more effective remedy on a global basis for uh, affected individuals and, and communities. Thank you, John. It's a nice note of optimism to, to end on. And one that I agree with, it's, as you have said a few times, a really, really difficult area to implement and get right. But it's also important to take the time, I think, to, to make that happen. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for your time. And I wish you a, a wonderful rest of the day. Absolutely my pleasure. Great to talk. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate and review it on Apple Podcast and share it with colleagues or peers you think would also get value from it. For more information about GBI, head to our website at gbihr.org. And for more practical insights into how companies are approaching human rights risks and issues, check out the Business Practice Portal, a unique online resource created by business for business which can be accessed from our website.